to the Simmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by just a moment, please. Something has happened in the motorcade route. Stand by, please. Parkland Hospital, there has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gun. Everything was in chaos. I'd never seen anything that destructive, that close up. In 1964, Alaska was shaken by the largest U.S. earthquake ever recorded, magnitude 9.2. The Beatles, one of the most electrifying names ever to hit show business. This is Los Angeles International Airport. The arrivals of the Beatles' big Pan Am jet stretches their patience almost to the breaking point, and then it explodes. Moments such as these define generations and change the world as we know it. Now, the past four plus years have been challenging, to say the least, especially for those in the world of journalism. Social media logarithms sowing seeds of doubt, skewering the truth. Then we have the political types crying about fake news, while respected journalists, editors, writers, and newspapers struggled to be heard above the celebrity experts. It was exhausting for all. And that's why it is so refreshing to speak with my next guest, to listen to a sample of stories from his career, an era that aimed to uncover and tell the stories that mattered without the cult of personality influences that we are flooded with today. Stories that were engaging, perfectly suited for this podcast. Welcome to the Creatively Engaging with my guest, Jay Berman. How did you decide to get into journalism? It was almost, it was sort of a second choice in a way. I liked writing even when I was in uh, a middle school and, and uh, in, into high school. Um, but it was always my, my second favorite thing. I was, I, was, I was a year younger than most of my classmates and, and, and maybe I wasn't as, as mature in some of them. And my favorite class was Latin. And so I thought, okay, that's what I want to do is teach Latin. It didn't occur to me that that might not be a uh, career choice that, uh, had a significant future. I graduated from, from high school. I was just barely 17. I go into college and, and I'm going to major in classical uh, languages. In my first year, uh, I was playing on the, on the freshman baseball team. And the, uh, the campus paper wasn't covering uh, freshman baseball. Freshman sports were separated from varsity sports uh, in those days. Keep in mind, this is 60 years ago. So I went to the newspaper and I said, uh, how come you don't cover uh, freshman baseball? And they said, we just don't have enough people for that. If, if you want it covered and, and you can write it, we'll cover it. And so I, I wrote them some game stories and they did. And then after my sophomore year, I felt uh, oh, uncertain about, about a lot of things. First of all, I was, I was going to have to take a couple of classes that I wasn't looking forward to. And my older brother I don't know whether it was just literally or it just seemed like he did, said, look, Latin is not a good growth area. <laughs> uh, you've always liked to write. You, you were on your high school paper. Why don't you transfer to USC 
University of Southern California, which offers a journalism program, change the major from classical uh, languages to journalism. And so I did. And then I, I graduated in, in two years because I just had two years remaining, uh, graduated and, and got a job in uh, newspapers just about right away. It's interesting that one of the first articles that you had written was about baseball because you are a, a massive baseball fan. I, I am I, and, and, and have been uh, for, well, a long, long time, since the 1950s, since I was very young. I wrote sports in high school and, and I had, we had a journalism program in high school. I, a lot of the high schools today in California, I don't, I don't know if this is true in BC, but a lot of, a lot of high schools uh, have uh, abandoned uh, the journalism programs as uh, uh, being uh, uh, unnecessary. But uh, yes, baseball and writing, are, uh, it's a, a combination uh, that I, I've always liked. Which newspapers did you work for? I, I worked at that point. I got a job with a uh, what then was a, a pretty uh, healthy organization in Redondo Beach. It was called the South Bay Daily Breeze. Uh, been in business since 1894. Uh, they're still in business, and we had about a, a circulation, a daily circulation of about 50,000, and it was increasing like a thousand every two or three months as this uh, South Bay area was growing. It's it's the area for those who, who aren't familiar with, with the term South Bay. Uh, it's uh, a city is just south of Los Angeles uh, Airport, uh, Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach, Torrance, uh, the Palos Verdes Peninsula. About twelve or thirteen cities in an, in, in an area just uh, southwest of uh, Los Angeles. Would you have been a full time employee for this newspaper? I was. Uh, I started as a reporter. And uh, at 21, and then uh, our sports editor uh, left, and uh, so they asked me if I'd go into sports. And, and actually, I, I preferred uh, the news side of things, but I, I agreed to do it. And, and uh, people think if you're interested in one sport that you're interested in, in all of them. And, and baseball is the only sports that I follow closely. But So I went into sports, and then uh, they had a couple of other changes, and they asked me if I would become city editor. City editor basically is the person who determines uh, what local uh, stories uh, uh, go into a paper and, and where they go. And so I was city editor for a couple of years after that. Were you in the field before you became the city editor, like as a journalist going out gathering stories? And Yeah, yeah. I covered uh, municipal government, uh, traffic accidents, uh, 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 crime, uh, police-related things. It, Pretty much what they call general assignment. So I have general assignment and uh, of, of city politics. So uh, a paper of that size, you pretty much have to be able to do everything. So I might I might be covering a, a homicide for a while, and then and then have to go into a Tuesday night uh, city council meeting, and then the next couple of days, uh, some kind of uh, maybe a business feature on the opening of a shopping mall, something like that. How did you record your? interviews in those early days when you're in the field i'm sure you didn't have a lot of high technology to to do that at the very start i don't think i even had a uh, cassette uh, uh recorder i don't remember when those came in um i just uh i, I write very quickly and, and and i have a good memory or at least i did back then and uh, whenever cassette players became uh, uh common i i started using those uh, as well Especially for interviews, if I was going to be interviewing uh, a celebrity or or, or uh, a, you know a, a city a city official or something like that, 
I'd, uh, if I had, if I had time, the problem with a, uh, uh, cassette recorder is that transcribing the whole thing can take a long time. And a great deal of your work is done on deadline. So if something was done on deadline, I would make a point of underlining. I mean, I'd be writing and I'd underline the things that sounded important to me at the time. And then when, when I went back and wrote the story, I would, I would focus on that basically on, on, when the things that had been underlined, those would probably be the highlight of the story. But, but I, yeah, I kept everything on tape just to make sure that I had gotten it right. So if somebody ever said, Hey, this isn't what I said, I could say, well, let's see if this is what you said. And, and, and it was. So early in Jay's career, he was fortunate enough to be given an assignment that would place him at the LAX airport when the four lads from Liverpool arrived to begin their first North American tour. Which I think was in April 1964, uh, the Beatles' first West Coast press conference. Uh, the Beatles came in, and, and, and so because I was both shooting and covering it, I was sitting very close to the desk, and uh, I mean the desk that, that they were sitting behind, and they just filed in. This was in the, the there were a lot of people there, a lot of people and a lot of cameras. Back on the 23rd, the boat doesn't Ringo, George, George, John, John, Pan Am was still obviously in business back then, and and the four of them came in and they sat down and, and uh, the one sitting closest to me was uh, Ringo. And it hadn't quite started yet officially. And he just looked at me and, and nodded something like, I don't know if he went, you know, Camara or something like that. And, I, and so I said, yeah, what, what can I do for you? And he says, is that an old Nikon Innis? And I said, yes, yes, it is. And he said, I've got one just like it. Can I see it? And so I, I handed it to him. He saw it's just exactly like mine. And he snapped off a couple of, of pictures of, of the reporters and handed it back to me. And uh, I, still, I still have that camera. I don't, I don't use it often obviously but uh that camera was about 10 years old i think even at that point but uh yeah ringo ringo recognized it uh for uh, being a nikon s immediately i have that one picture of him and he's definitely looking at me and and, and in fact when they left he sort of waved at everyone but he, he made eye contact with me and and, and uh you know i just sort of nodded it, 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 it seemed even that you know even in, in early in 1964 like that uh, the phenomenon was still relatively new here, but uh, you knew that that you weren't just dealing with, uh, you know, Andy Williams or something. It was it was pretty clear that they were going to be huge. Were you a rookie reporter at the time then? Oh, that's kind of a thing, a tough thing to uh, determine. I mean, are you a rookie for six months <laughs> or for one year or two years? Or something? <laughs> I was well, at that point. I would have been twenty four years old. Okay, but I I, I had three years, you know, full time experience, so I. I certainly didn't feel like a, a rookie. I was I was 24, and, and uh, newspaper staffs generally tend to have a, a lot of younger people, especially on a, a small suburban paper like that, until they you know uh, uh, have enough experience where they might go to a larger paper. I know you're a very personable guy. You're you're very interested in people uh, and what they're doing. What was your interview style like? Jay, you said you had a you were a fast writer. You had a good memory. How would you gain sort of the confidence and the trust of the people that you were interviewing quickly to get that story? 
That's a great question. That, that really is. That's a, a great question. I think more than anything is, is what you have to do is, is to be prepared uh, before you do it. For example, getting back to the Beatles for a second, someone who hadn't been following them at all, I think was in New York, asked John, which, which one are you? And, got, uh, and John says, I'm Dave. <laughs> and and so the guy wrote down, you know, okay, this one is Dave. <laughs> and uh you you have to know what you're talking about. You know, if you're if you're talking to uh uh, uh a baseball player, you don't want to say are you know, are you a guy that hits home runs or are you a guy that uh, pitches or uh, do you get left-handed or right-handed or, or uh, are you famous? Should I know about you? You know, something like that. You you have to let them know that that you're prepared, right? And that you're not going to ask them a question that that insults their intelligence or wastes their time. So pre-interview, though, you probably wouldn't have a lot of time at, in different situations to to do that. Sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. Uh, I I did some uh, uh, entertainment stuff too. Uh, later on, uh, I was with a, a, another newspaper. I. I left that newspaper uh, because I was offered uh, uh, substantially more money to go to work in corporate uh, public relations. Uh, I think it was just about twice as much to work for an aerospace firm. And it was just boring. It was totally stultifying. And, and, and uh, after three years of doing that, I went back to a, another newspaper. I was offered a, a job at a newspaper in Santa Monica called The Evening Outlook. And they wanted uh, um, uh, celebrity features. And so among the celebrities that I interviewed were Gordon Lightfoot. Oh, another Canadian, uh, uh, a Canadian uh, husband-wife uh, folk uh, team uh, at that time, Ian and Sylvia. And so I, I, I knew, I made a point, I had time to prepare myself for, for all of those. I mean, you know, if, 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 if I was interviewing uh, uh, Ian and Sylvia and, and, and he starts talking about, you know, the song Four Strong Winds, I wouldn't say, well, did you write that or did Neil Young write that? You know, you just being prepared is the best way to gain their, their confidence. And uh, the same thing with, with, with Gordon Lightfoot. You know, you, you know their music or whatever. It doesn't have to be music. If it's, if it's sports, you know their sport. If, if, it's, if it's governmental, uh, you have to know uh, something about that city or that county or whatever it is. Would there be one interview that really stands out to you that in your career that you remember? I think most people would say yes, uh, uh, but but no. Uh, uh, Linda Ronstadt, because uh, uh, she was just sort of starting out, and what most people noticed about Linda Ronstadt was how stunningly beautiful she was, and she really was. But the thing that I remembered about her was uh, how intelligent she was, and uh, that made her a, a really good interview. From that standpoint, uh, it was a lot of fun because she was a good interview, and it we, we must have had an hour together. You know, I was, I was running out of questions and things to say at that point. At some point, it just became a, a conversation. Uh, uh, the Gordon Lightfoot one was, was more difficult because uh, I think uh, uh, he had had a little bit too much to drink uh, before uh, I interviewed him. And he had that reputation back then. And uh, he wasn't uncooperative, but uh, it, was, um, it was a challenge. Oh, here's one. Here's one that, that's interesting. Uh, uh, I was in uh, uh, Cuba. Uh, Irene and I uh, had gone to Cuba uh, uh, in 1986, and I was 
I was writing a, uh, a feature piece for the Christian Science Monitor on, on ending the blockade in, in Cuba or a need for ending the blockade of Cuba. And this was in, this is 35 years ago. So you can see how, how effective I was. But in any case, when, um, uh, I had, I had already written that pretty much, but, uh, uh, I asked, there was a, we were, there was a Cuban governmental official, a, a deputy secretary of state who would, um, they're kind of like a minder, you know, making sure that you're interviewing the right people and all. They, they gave us a great deal of latitude. Uh, Cuba was never like North Korea or, or East Germany or something. They, you can go anywhere you want and, and talk to anybody you want. But uh, they asked if there was anything else I'd like to do. And I said, I'd like to interview the baseball commissioner. And uh, it didn't occur to me that the baseball commissioner wouldn't speak any English at all. Uh, but he didn't. And uh, uh, I speak uh, somewhere between poor and fair Spanish. And, and, and so, so does Irene, my wife. And uh, so somehow uh, I interviewed the Cuban baseball commissioner and got a good story out of that, speaking to him only in, in Spanish. Well, Jay would have the opportunity early in his career to witness musical history being made with groups such as the Beatles and having the opportunity to interview other well-recognized performers and entertainers and individuals in the sports fields. Jay also was part of reporting on significant world events that occurred. Uh, and this is one of those days that you never forget, of course. Uh, uh, I got a call from uh, the city manager in Torrance. That's the chief executive, the chief governmental executive of, of uh, that, that city. And uh, in those days, uh, uh, obviously, this is way before the Internet. And so you didn't have uh, uh, news coming in on everybody's individual screen. Screen. You just had a, a wire machine sitting over in the corner making you know, loud clicking noises. And so the city manager of Torrance called me. And he says, Jay, what's this I hear about uh, President Kennedy being shot? And I said, Mike, God, Ed, that's not funny. What, what, you know, I knew him pretty well, and I, I thought he was joking. He said, I'm not joking. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing on the radio that President Kennedy has been shot. And I said, just a second, I'll be right back. I put down my phone and I went over to the wire machine and the people in the, on the news desk who are in charge of that wire hadn't been monitoring it closely. And, and, and for about five minutes, it had been ringing and dinging and, and, and making all the noises. It would say pause, pause, you know, a, 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 a bust, which meant Whatever you've got moving, don't do it because this is more important. And at that point, it just says President Kennedy has been shot. And so I went back to my phone and I said, Ed, you're right. I've got to go. And then I went to uh, uh, the uh, managing editor and I said, John, President Kennedy's been shot. And, and, and uh, I said it quietly because I didn't want to create some panic where everybody in the whole new newsroom would uh, go crazy. And so he just started writing uh, assignments on the uh, on a blackboard, you know, and have different people trying to get different reactions. And so I wrote the local uh, uh, sidebar story on on the JFK assassination, and uh, we worked like eighteen hours or something that day. Four plus months after the JFK assassination, Jay would find himself in a very different situation, and that would be on a U.S. military aircraft heading north from California to Anchorage, Alaska, to witness the results of the most powerful earthquake actually recorded in North American history, 
and the second most powerful earthquake recorded in world history. Uh, I was sent to uh, Anchorage to cover the uh, uh, 1964 Anchorage uh, earthquake. That was the one that was like a, a 9.1 or a 9.2 or something. Our paper wouldn't ordinarily have done something like that, but uh, the military was trying to show off what a, a good job it was doing. And so the Air Force was sending reporters, uh, uh, taking reporters up there, and they only were doing like one per uh, newspaper. And so they wanted someone who could both uh, uh, write and, and shoot the photos. And I was a good photographer. And so they sent me up to Anchorage. And I spent a week up in, in Anchorage and to show you how how long ago this was, the, the quickest way for me to get film back to them was to shoot a few rolls in 35 millimeter film and then have it flown overnight to uh, Los Angeles from Anchorage. And then they'd use the pictures the following day. Jane, when you were on assignment or doing your reporting, did you ever feel that your life was in danger or that you maybe were in a situation that was a threat to your well-being? I have been in places that were dangerous, covering, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, riot-type situations, the, the Watts riots, but I wasn't there for an interview. I mean, I've, I've just, you know, been in, in, a, in a spot where, where some scary things were going on, but, but I was never personally challenged or, or, or told, you know, get, get out of here, we don't need you here, or, or something like that. So no, I've never I've never been under any 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 physical uh, kind of uh, constraint. But in around that environment, like the Watts riots and and that sort of situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You knew that you always wanted to know where you were, uh, how far you were from your car. Uh, it's a good idea to uh, uh, see that there are are, are police or uh, fire people of somewhere. Oh wait, no, here's one that uh, not danger from other people, but. Uh, there was a big fire in the Bel Air area near uh, uh, Beverly Hills. And I think it was in 62, it could have been 1963. And uh, I was uh, shooting pictures more than talking to anybody because they were evacuating everybody. And, and I was taking pictures of, of uh, uh, houses and firemen. And, and uh, all of a sudden I looked around and I didn't see any, uh, any more firemen. And, and I saw a lot more fire than I, I wanted to see. And uh, I didn't see any trucks or anything. And I, I thought, oh, you know, am I surrounded by this thing? And uh, I, you know, it's been 60 years, so I don't remember exactly. But I, I got out of there pretty quickly and uh, with, no, with no injury. But it, that, could have been, that could have been very problematic. What was it like working in the newspaper type setting, newsroom type setting? What were some of the dynamics that were going on? behind the scenes behind the scenes uh it's probably much the same as, as any business you know you've got people who are in charge and, and 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 people who aren't you've got people who are helpful and cooperative and and others who are not uh uh you're going to have power struggles and and uh uh people who are are, are very capable and, and those who are not that capable and uh you just uh try to uh, take it all in and and uh uh, uh, do what you're, do what you're doing. When I was city editor, I had uh, 12 reporters and it was a little tricky at first because I was still only 24 years old and all of the reporters were older than I, uh, uh all at least three, four years older than I, and some of them in their forties. 
And so I'm this 24-year-old kid who looked even younger than that. And uh, um, I've got a staff, you know, and the, the one thing I didn't want to do was be, uh, uh, you know, a bossy uh, kind of, hey, you, uh, this is what I need, you know, get over here kind of thing. So that, that was, that, that called for a lot of tax, but, but I've, uh, I've always been pretty good at that sort of thing. Yeah, but it's, it's pretty much like any sort of business. You know, you've got uh, certain things you, you need to do. Uh, we have, okay, one, one thing was that the advertising department was always trying to get uh, uh, stories into the paper that really weren't news stories at all. We were like there's the opening of a new tire dealer or something. And they'd say, oh, you know, Eddie's wheel and tire is going to open in uh, on Hawthorne Boulevard. And the managing editor would say, well, don't you think that ought to be on uh, page two or three? I'd say, John, it's a tire dealer. Is that news? What's news about a tire dealer? There's, there's, there's tires everywhere. You know, if it, if it burns down or gets held up, then you've got a, a news story. But uh, I'd make him have to tell me, look, this is a must. This has to go in. And, you know, and, and I'd say, in other words, you want this advertising, this, this ad to go in disguised as news. And that's, that's about the only time that it would get uh, confrontational. But I, I always knew that I would lose. Fairly young in that position at 24. Did you have a, a mentor or anybody that you really looked up to to help you guide you through those tricky waters at times, I'm sure? Yeah, you know, a couple of people. That's also a very good question. Uh, John Moon, the managing editor, uh, was a very bright guy. And uh, he was a, a, a difficult guy from the standpoint that uh, uh, if, if, uh, if he had been around... Uh, uh, in the last few years, I'm sure he would have been a, a Trumpy. Uh, he was a very uh, arch conservative kind of guy. And, and uh, anyone who didn't see things the way he did, he would call them liberals. And he would pronounce it kind of like that. He's, well, you liberals uh, don't know. I'd say, yeah, you're right, John. Look out. There's a communist behind you, you know, or something, you know, like, like, like that. But, but he took it all in pretty good, uh, uh, with, with good nature. But uh, he was a very bright guy. And then uh, also, before I was city editor, the city editor immediately before me was a guy named Ken Johnson. And uh, Ken was uh, probably my best friend for, uh, oh, close to 50 years. Ken, Ken was one of the brightest people and best, uh, uh, best uh, reporters and best editors and one of the, the sharpest people I've, I've ever known. Ken's been gone about 10 years now. but. Uh, uh, he was uh, a brilliant guy. After you retired, you continued, obviously, your passion for writing and stories. Um, and that's how we met when you first connected with Makiko and did the article on Makiko's painting. And yes, the story I did on, on Makiko uh, is a good example of that. I'd see something that uh, uh, interested me personally, and, uh, and I think, well, that, that sounds like a good story as, as well. Uh, another example would be uh, uh, not far from from you. Uh, there's a lady uh, in uh, Everett, Washington, who operates a, a shelter for dogs called uh, Old Dog Haven. And we were in Vancouver, and I think it was uh, KOMO that was uh, running a story about uh, this lady. And I thought, ooh, that's a story. You know, that's that's a newspaper story. And so I contacted her and went over there and. and uh, interviewed her and and amazingly i had trouble selling that one there were people who said okay this is a lady that likes dogs so what and uh, i had i had some difficulty with that but eventually placed that and um 
Uh, I interviewed a man in Argentina who operates the world's southernmost brewery. Uh, uh, when when Irene and I were in uh, 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 South America about seven years ago, I interviewed a guy in Ushuaia. It's the southernmost city in the world. And uh, he operates Beagle uh, Brewing, uh, named for Darwin's ship. And uh, uh, his, uh, all of his uh, ingredients come from Buenos Aires, which is 1,200 miles north of there. And, and uh, the, uh, you know, the, he gets his water from glaciers uh, 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 that are just behind the brewery. And so that kind of thing, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's unique. The diversity of Jay's experiences, his interviews, stories are fascinating to me. I love the obscure nature of many of his topics. It's a true reflection of his curiosity and the willingness to find that story thread and pursue it. One of my favorites takes me back to my childhood years when a local doctor in our hometown in Nova Scotia had three very unusual and intriguing vehicles. The Citroen. The shape of the future comes into focus with the latest Citroen. At a unique demonstration before press and public at Kyalami, the wheel and turn of a Citroen cavalcade that spells out safety. Jay, it seems, had a very similar interest. I've always had a fascination with obscure cars. So I like really strange cars. I've always liked the Citroën 2CV, which is a, a strange little car. It was sort of the, the French equivalent or answer to the VW. And the idea was that uh, uh, you had people who were buying their first car, many of them. It was just, just post-war. They now had enough money that they could afford to buy a, a, a car. And it would hold four people. Uh, the back seat would fold forward, so if they were uh, farmers taking something into the uh, uh, weekly uh, uh, farmer's market, it would fit there. Uh, it could carry most anything, and, and, and it would do 100 kilometers per hour, so about 60 miles per hour. Uh, it wasn't a good-looking car, and uh, it had a little two-cylinder engine that was about, I think, 14 or 16 horsepower. And uh, uh, some people, some companies refuse to insure them mm. uh, as, as being uh, uh, unsafe. And so to me, I thought, oh, what, could, what, what more could you ask for? And I don't know how I heard a guy named Noel Slade. And he was in a New York suburb, actually, in New Jersey called uh, Tom's River. And uh, uh, the beauty of that was that he was taking parts that, that had never been put together. They had never been assembled into full cars. When they stopped building the 2CV or Dochevo, when they stopped building it, there were parts left over enough to build hundreds or maybe thousands of them. And he started buying these parts and putting them together to manufacture whole vehicles from them. And, and so he was selling these, these new used uh, uh, two CVs out of his uh, uh, plant in uh, uh, New Jersey. And um, 
I have a, uh, a friend who was working for Road and Track magazine at that time. He was a former student of mine. And I just kind of hoping a hope against hope asked if that's something that they might be interested in. Uh, Road and Track generally deals with exotic cars, Lamborghinis and, and uh, Ferraris and uh, Porsches and BMWs. Nothing, nothing like a Citroën that, that does 50 miles an hour, you know. But he said, let me check with the editors. And they, and they called me back or emailed me. And he says, yeah, they'd love it. So I called this guy, you know, Mr. Slade, my name is Jay Berman. I'm a freelance writer in California. I understand you're building uh, uh, from scratch. You're building these Citroen 2 CVs. He said, why, yes, I do. And so we talked a couple of times and I wrote a story about it and uh, they used it. And uh, that would have been about 10 years ago. Now, he ran into financial and legal problems a few years ago. I wrote this article about 10 or 11 years ago, and in 2017, I think, um, he ran into some sort of legal problems. There were people said that uh, he was promising things that uh, he wasn't delivering. And so uh, a few of them went after him uh, uh, in court and uh, I believe forced him out of business. Jay obviously loved the diversity of his freelance projects. And it was very interesting that his favorite freelance project would have an indirect connection to the Beatles press conference he attended many years earlier at LAX. I think my, oh, my favorite, my favorite freelance, I can give you a definite answer on this one. I sold, uh, Irene and I were in Japan. And uh, at that point, there was a John Lennon uh, museum uh, just outside of uh, Tokyo that uh, Yoko Ono had opened, I think, on what would have been John's 50th birthday. He was born in 1940, so I think this was 1990. So it was right around that time that she opened this, this John Lennon museum. And I, I didn't have any, any buyer in mind. But so we went to the John Lennon Museum. I took pictures. I, I talked with uh, people. Uh, there were a few people there who spoke English, although naturally it was an all-Japanese staff. Because people are still worrying about war. To come here gives you an opportunity for rest, to think peace, to decide what your action for peace is going to be, even if it's just being kinder to other people. And uh, when I came back, uh, even without anybody to write it for, I started working on it. Now, one of my former students from Cal State Fullerton was working at the New York Times. And I contacted him. I said, well, you know, I've been to, to Tokyo and I, uh, there's a story about this John Lennon Museum that I'd like to do. I might as well try to start at the top. Would the New York Times be interested in it? And I was able to sell that to the New York Times. And that was, that was a thrill. Seeing your byline at the New York Times is a, is a kick. When I speak to you today, you're still very passionate about the world of writing and journalism. What is, what's a quality in yourself that's kept you connected that way? Well, curiosity. Mm -hmm. Curiosity and, and, and always being interested in things. I, I, I read a lot. I, I, uh, I read the, uh, the LA Times. Uh, I read the... Uh, uh, New York Times uh, online and the uh, uh, Guardian from England. Uh, 
uh, online uh, a lot. I just, I try to, I, I, I read almost everything that looks interesting to me and maybe not all of everything, but I'll read down to the, the jump, you know, where the story ends on page on whatever page it begins. And if it, if it doesn't hold my interest then I, I won't read it any further, but uh, I'm still interested in things. You know, I, I, I think it's important to be interested. Otherwise you lose contact with the world. Having known Jay for many years, uh, curiosity is definitely something, a driving force in his life, as he says. And early in his career, he would also meet someone who would be a driving force, an anchor point in his life. I'm, I'm not a strong personality. I'm not the kind of person who has a master plan and says, this is, this is what I'm going to do, and this is when I'm going to do it, and, you know, that, that, that sort of thing. And, and so I've always had an idea of maybe a short term, you know, this is what I ought to do now or something like that, but never, you know, some kind of long range thing. And, and the most important thing uh, that, that's ever happened to me was meeting Irene because uh, I had uh, gone through a, uh, a, a breakup that I hadn't seen coming. I was going with a, uh, a, a young lady that was working on her doctorate at uh, University of California in Santa Barbara. And, and, and uh, we had been together for a little over two years. And uh, at one point, she says, uh, she called and said, I, I need you to come pick up your clothes and your records. And I said, well, pick up my clothes and record? What? Why? And she said, well, this isn't going to work. So I was, I was really pretty uh, shaken by that and uh, very leery. And uh, so I, I went through a period, this would have been in 1971, where I just wasn't going out with anybody. I, I was just avoiding everything. And, and uh, I was thinking, and there's an old Paul Simon song called I Am a Rock about solitude and, and, and staying away from people. And, and, and you, you won't be in any pain if you just avoid everything. So I was, you know, not quite a hermit, but uh, so then when I started working in the district attorney's office, uh, and I met Irene, I thought I just you know talked to her a couple of times, and I thought, oh, she's cute and she's uh, fun, but uh, I, I I didn't want to go out with her. I, I didn't. I thought, well, she's too uh, she's too attractive. She's uh, bright. She's uh, I'm not going to put myself through that again. And that's why it took us six and a half years before we finally got married. But uh, we're coming up on forty three years now, and and uh, so uh, she just she made. You know, I, I, I do tend to see things, you know, from like a sports analogy. So I, I think of like a first half and a second half. That's more like football than it is baseball. But the second half of my life has been far more enjoyable than the first half just because uh, uh, of Irene. You know, we've been all around the world together. We've been to, uh, uh, you know, places I never thought we, we'd go. We've been, to, you know, as, as far north as the very top of Alaska and as Far south is, is the, the tip of South America, uh, Chile, Argentina. And you definitely found a perfect match with Irene. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. No, there's, there's no question. There's, it's, it's been fun. She, uh, and she says, she thinks that one of the things that she needs to do is uh, try to keep me uh, uh, happy or laughing. Can I give you one, one little example of that? Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by, by ancient history. And, and uh, uh, so there was a, uh, uh, a story in the uh, New York Times, I think, a, a couple of months ago, where uh, uh, in Italy, 
they they were excavating more areas around uh, Pompeii, and they had found a uh, a restaurant that had never been uh, excavated uh, before. And they just dug through all of the uh, rubble, and they found uh, this place had stools where people sat at a counter. Uh, there were holes in the counter where uh, 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 copper uh, bowls of food could be placed, and they could tell from scientific, you know, this was chicken, this was fish, this was beef. And uh, on the walls, there were murals uh, depicting different t- types of animals. And I guess it was just decorative or maybe for people that didn't read or something. But there was a big mural of a fish, a, a large mural of a cow, a big mural of, of, of a chicken. And, and it talked about the kind of condition that was in. And this occurred, you know, nearly 2000 years ago, 79 A.D., and so I'm astonished by all that. And so I showed it to Irene and she read the story. And I said, what do you think? And she said, chickens haven't changed. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I said, no, you're right. Chickens, chickens haven't, changed, haven't changed very much at all. Oh, they look exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, they pretty much do. And I said, did you expect them to have helmets or spears or, or something, you know? But she just she does stuff like that just to uh, to crack me up because she thinks I I take things too seriously otherwise. And Jay, you also have a another woman in your life that you're very close to that's very special to you has had an incredible career. Your aunt Nancy Norman. She's my father's youngest sister. Now she was a singer in the big band era. What age would she have started her career? Uh, 17 to 21 or so that she was doing the uh, uh, the Sammy Kay uh, uh, years. That was from 1942 when she was 17 to 1945. The vocal spotlight this time shines upon Nancy Norman. I can't begin to tell you how much you mean to me my world would end if ever we She was born and raised in Los Angeles and, and uh, really just wanted to get back to Los Angeles. She, she was tired of living in New York. She didn't really like it that much. And she wanted to get back here. And she was dating someone and wanted to get married. She wanted to come back to California. And so she did. That wasn't the end of her career. It was the end of her career with a big band. Uh, she spent several more years after that as a singer on a, 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 a radio show and then a TV show that Steve Allen had in the 40s and into the 1950s. And she knew, she knew everybody that there was to know uh, in, in the show business. And, and uh, one time about 1970, she had been doing some uh, fundraising for a uh, 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 assisted living home in uh, East Los Angeles, and they were really hurting. Oh, you know, we need, 
another $100,000. We need some kind of a big thing that we'll do it. And, and she said, well, what, what would you like? And they said, we'd like, you know, if somebody could get together a big show of, of, of a couple of, you know, well-known people. And so she said, oh, I'll work on that. I'll get you somebody. And so she got a, an evening with Bob Hope and Jack Benny. And, uh, and so I went to that and I was sitting in the front row in, in fact, and, uh, this whole thing was just put together by, by my aunt at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. And, uh, neither Benny nor Hope, uh, uh, got paid for that thing at all. They just, uh, did it for, uh, for her and, uh, and it was, it was full, you know? Wow. It was pretty memorable. Uh, Benny seemed like a really funny guy, even you know, in person, not just his radio show. That was fun for me because I had been a, a big Jack Benny fan as, as a kid, you know, and growing up. Amazing. What was she like as a person? Nancy? Well, to me, she was just my aunt. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I understand that, that, that there was some celebrity status, you know, to other people. But to me, she was just Aunt Nancy and, and still is. She doesn't live that far from us. She, she lives near the UCLA campus, right on the corner of Beverly Hills and Bel Air. And, and so she lives up there. She, um, she kept track of all of the other people that she knew, you know, until, until they passed away. Uh, like uh, uh, she was a close friend to uh, uh, Lena Horne, uh, Doris Day, uh, when I, Irene and I were up in Carmel about, and we stayed at a uh, hotel that is, uh, that was operated by Doris Day. We, uh, we told my aunt Nancy that we had stayed at Doris Day's hotel. And Nancy said, how is Doris? Did you talk to her? You know, and I said, well, she's not, you know, running the desk or something, you know, aunt Nancy, she's just, uh, just, uh, you know, owns it, but she, she wasn't there, but. I think she kept in, in touch with her and uh, K Star, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, she knew James Stewart well, even though he wasn't uh, a singer, because you'd have all these people in New York that were passing through and, and wanted to see uh, uh, Sammy Kay, or they'd all go out to dinner and something. It was all pre television days. So, you know, when you were done, uh, uh, for the day you'd uh, uh, go to some, you know, Manhattan restaurant or something. So she knew a lot of these people. When I first interviewed her, the first time I interviewed her for a, a newspaper, the day that the they got the uh, the word that the war had ended, there was a ship coming in that uh, uh, I guess they knew that it was about to end, and uh, Cab Calloway uh, came into their studio. And he says, the war is over. The war is over, you know. And so they all, they just stopped practicing and they went down to some nearby pier. I, I don't know New York that well. I don't know where the, uh, where ships come in, but it was in Manhattan that they, that they would reverse. And so as the ship came in, they set up and started playing, uh, uh for them. And, and, and she, oh, she said, James Stewart was there. And Cab Calloway was there, and then the whole band was there. And, and uh, that was the day that the war uh, officially was over. She remembers that very well, as, as you would expect. That's, that's a, a, a kind of thing that, that 
you'd remember forever. So she remembers that from 75 years ago. Yeah. And she oh. remembers the words to virtually all of the songs that, that she sang and the order in which they were hits. Like she liked, she, one of her favorites was There Will Never Be Another You. She loved singing that. And when she does a few lines of that, she still sounds like Nancy Norman. She doesn't sound like a woman in her mid-90s. And uh, another one was um, Saturday night is the loneliest night of the week. A little story from little Nancy Norman. Saturday night is the loneliest night in the week Cause that's the night that my sweetie and I used to dance cheek to cheek I don't mind Sunday night at all Cause that's the night friends come to call And Monday to Friday go past And another week is but Saturday night is the loneliest night in the week. Now, she and Sammy Cave recorded that, and Sinatra liked it, and he recorded it, and her rec- recording outsold Sinatra's recording of that. And she used to, whenever she would run into Sinatra back there, she used to like to joke with him about the fact that, uh, that her recording of, of Saturday Night was a, a bigger success than his. And, uh, oh, she, she also says, you know, a lot of people, Sinatra has this reputation of having been kind of a tough guy or difficult to deal with or, or uh, maybe even had unsavory friends uh, somewhere. But uh, she said Sinatra was a great guy and very, uh, very helpful and, and, in fact, protective of her because at that point she's 17, 18 years old. And, and, you know, so there'd be guys that would flirt with her. She was a very attractive young woman. And so you'd have some, you know, guys, you know, had a couple of drinks or something and they tried to hit up with her on the road or something. And Sinatra would say, Hey, leave the lady alone. And so once Frank Sinatra tells you to leave the lady alone, you, uh, you leave the lady alone. Yeah. No doubt about that. I, I don't think that I would, have wanted to uh, messed with Frank Sinatra either at that time. That's for sure. What an amazing life that your aunt Nancy has lived. You shared some pretty incredible stories today with us on the show. And so how do you feel when you reflect back on your 
career in writing and journalism? It's, it's been a lot of fun. I, I, I've, uh, I've, I've had a good time. I, I, uh, uh, I've, I've never been a big planner in advance. I didn't know what my career was going to be, what it was going to, you know, where I was going to go or what was going to happen. And, uh, so, I mean, the fact that I wanted to teach Latin ought to give you a, a pretty good indication of, of, of that. So I've, I've just had the opportunity to do a lot of things. I have, I have very few regrets about, uh, much of anything. I'm, I'm, I'm 81. I probably didn't expect to, to live this long because, uh, of a, a generic, a genetic uh, problem that, that my mom, uh, has, has sort of like passed down to everybody. So I've, I lived longer than either of my parents and either of my brothers. And, uh, and so I, I, I should be just happy with this. But on the other hand, I had an aunt who lived to be 98. I have another aunt who is 96 and still with us. And I had a great grandfather who fought in the U.S. Civil War and he lived to be 97. So I'm just going to try to, to concentrate on that and see just how long I can go. It was such a great opportunity to be able to speak with uh, Jay Berman today, and I hope that you enjoyed the interview and enjoyed the show. And if, if you like it, it really helps if you share it with a friend to gain exposure. And it also really, really helps if you are able to take the time to write a, a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference. And for a little bit of extra, at the end of this podcast, I've added a short section where Jay talks about an interview he did with the survivor of the Titanic. You had the opportunity to interview one of the survivors of the Titanic. I, I did, and, and I suppose there's a bit of a cliche to that. Uh, uh, the Titanic, obviously, and, and, and every school child knows, and sank in 1912. So, uh, the 50th anniversary of that would have been 1962. And uh, uh, I was a young reporter in 1962. And my uh, uh, editor sent me out. Uh, I was working for a newspaper in Redondo Beach, California. And he sent me to Hermosa Beach, which is right next to Redondo Beach. It's uh, they're, they're neighboring. There's three cities, Redondo Beach, Hermosa Beach, Manhattan Beach. We, we live in Manhattan Beach. And so they sent me to interview a lady named Edwina McKenzie. And uh, she was one of the uh, survivors. Uh, she was one of the older uh, survivors. A lot of children were saved because they were just tossed into lifeboats and, and, and taken to uh, uh, Halifax, which is where a, a lot of the people were uh, taken after, after the, uh, the sinking. But she was already, I think, 26 or 27 years old. She was going to visit her, her sister. She had been to the U.S. before, in fact. So the ship went down, and, and uh, she got into a, a lifeboat. And, and I remember her telling me the two things that she remembered most were the cold and the total darkness. Once, once the ship went down, I mean, the lights were on until it went down. The lights, the, many of the lights stayed on. And then as it slipped below the surface, everything went off. And she said at that point, it was totally dark. And uh, she was rescued along with, uh, what, 600, 700 other people, I think. 
And uh, she lived uh, another 23 years or so. She died at 100 years old. What was your feeling coming away from that interview? How did you, how do you feel that incident impacted her? She was aware of her part in history, mm-hmm. you know, as you might, might think. I mean, it was like being uh, around uh, uh, maybe a, a Kennedy assassination or, or uh, being uh, uh, in one of the uh, uh, World Trade Center buildings when, when, when they were attacked or something. She, she knew immediately that, that this was a, a part of history and that she was uh, uh, inadvertently becoming a part of that history. Sadly, it's, uh, she had told the story so many times. She was so familiar with it that it, it almost defined who she was. But, uh, uh, you know, you, you would say, oh, there's Edwina McKenzie, the Titanic survivor. And uh, uh, it was clear to me that she had told people everything about it. Now, if I were a really good reporter, maybe I'd come up with some new question that she'd say, oh, that's a nice one. Nobody's asked me about that before. But, but I don't remember that I, I came up with anything brand new. But uh, she was... Uh, uh, not at all reluctant to tell the story, was very cognizant of what was going on. She knew from the start that uh, she, she heard some people say, oh, this thing can't sink. It just can't sink. And she thought, well, it's going to. She had the feeling she, she was a, a pretty sophisticated lady, and she, she had traveled before by ship. And uh, she felt that it was going down just from the, from the angle uh, and, and the amount of water that it was taking on. So uh, she, uh, I got the impression that she did not lose her uh, uh, wits about her or, or panic or anything, but got into a boat as, as soon as she could and uh, um, was, was saved. And uh, you might think, well, I'll bet that's the last time she ever but traveled by ship, and it was not. You know, she stayed in the U.S. with her sister for a while and then went back to England on another, uh, on another ship. So uh, uh, I, I think that would be my last uh, uh, trip. It would be like a trip on the, on the Hindenburg. You know, when, when, when can we get on another one? 